take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 1 Samuel. Today we're in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to do some, be looking at some selected passages from chapter 8 through chapter 10 with this key concept today. Let God lead you and you will walk in safety. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where we will begin. As you're finding that passage, I'll remind you that last week we left off by mentioning the fact that in 1 Samuel chapter 7, after a just fantastically tragic defeat at the hand of the Philistines uh, in previous chapters, in chapter 7 we see the children of Israel finally responding to the message of Samuel and turning to God in repentance. Chapter 7, we see a, uh, th- that period of repentance culminating in a ceremony in a place called Mitzpah. And uh, the nation seems to be turning back to the Lord as they repent of their rebellion. But just like in our lives, in the lives of the people of the nation of Israel, repentance leaks. And so now we come to chapter 8 and a turning point in the history of the nation of Israel, where for the first time they will call for a human king. And let's notice what prompts this calling for a human king. Chapter 8, look with me in verses 1 through 5. This is what we see there. It says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You are old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations." As we come into chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, Samuel is now an old man, and he is the all-in-one judge, prophet, and high priest of Israel. And he has placed his sons in positions of authority that they do not deserve. They are taking bribes as judges. They are mishandling justice for their own purposes. The sons of the priest are not walking in the ways of God. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It was exactly that which led to the defeats that we saw in chapters 5 and 6. In that situation, it was the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who were not following in the waves of their father. And here it is again now with Samuel being repeated. We used to have a saying as I was growing up. It was second verse, same as the first, a little bit louder and a little bit worse. That's exactly what we see here. Second verse, same as the first. All all the names have been changed. Joel and Abijah, the sons of Samuel, are evil. And you can imagine the meetings that are happening behind closed doors. You can imagine the discussions as the people are growing more and more restless. Our companion commentary that uh, some of you are reading says uh, at this point that it's obvious that one of these sons will take Samuel's place, or at least that's probably the intention. And so people are starting to get nervous. They're starting to get restless. And what they need, they say, is regime change. We need regime change. We need a different way to do government, a better way, 
to govern. In fact, people have always been looking for better ways to govern, different ways to, to uh, run the nations and the economies of the nations and those kinds of things. I ran across an article some time ago about a man, uh, 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 written by a man who described the various systems of government and, and economic forces by describing the way that the different systems relate to the property that citizens own. And particularly in this illustration, he used the property of cows. It went like this. In communism, you have two cows. The government takes them both and milks them, keeps, keeps most of the milk, and gives you just enough milk to survive. That's communism. In socialism, you have two cows. The government takes one and gives that cow to your neighbor to redistribute the wealth. That's socialism. In fascism, you have two cows. The government takes one and shoots it and then locks the other in a barn and you have no cow and no milk. In Nazism, you have two cows. The government takes both of your cows and shoots you. In capitalism, you have two cows. You milk both. But then you sell one of the cows to buy a bull hoping to expand your business and get a larger herd. That's capitalism. Different forms of government and economy have different outcomes. But in the best of government systems, the outcome is only as good as the leaders who are doing the governing. And Samuel, in an unprecedented move, we don't see this anywhere else, Samuel has promoted his sons evidently on his own, and he has sent them to the southernmost portion of the nation Israel, Beersheba is the southernmost area, to be judges there, and he has embarked in a circuit-riding-like mission where he circles in, from city to city in the central portion of the country just, and, and, and is judging there. And in all of this, people are seeking regime change, but Samuel doesn't like what he hears. Let's pick up the reading in verse 6. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now listen to them, but warm, warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Now I want you to see the fact of having a human king is not bad in and of itself. In fact, Moses, back in Deuteronomy, speaks to the expectation that one day they would have a human king. But it is their timing and it is their motivation that is wrong. You see, repentance has leaked. The national repentance is no longer being felt. And the Lord sees that even though the people are kind of physically rejecting Samuel and his sons, they are spiritually rejecting God himself and seeking to get things their own way. Because the Lord, you see, sees past the pretense of the bad behavior of Samuel's sons. Sure, that, that situation was true, and it gave an opportunity for them to ask for a king. Yes, Samuel's sons are bad judges, but that's not really the basic reason for the request. The reason, the deeper reasons, are given in chapter 8, verse 19 and 20. It says this, We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. 
What is the real motivation for seeking a king? It is so that we can be like other nations, so we can blend in, and so that we'll have a, a figurehead, a person that we will see fighting on our side. They're saying, we are rejecting the distinctiveness that we are the only nation in the world that is ruled by God Himself. We are rejecting that distinctiveness. We want to define the systems of authority ourselves. We're not too fond of taking it by faith that there is a God up there who's watching out for us as His chosen people. We need to be able to watch out for ourselves. We want a king we can see. We want a human, tangible, physical king. We think we'll have more confidence with a king fighting on our side. It seems to work out for everybody else, and we want to blend in. This is the typical kind of reasoning that occurs when you lose patience in your faith, when you resort to human thinking, when you decide to take matters in your own hand and do things your own way. And it can be applied in all kinds of areas in life. In the area of finance, it sounds like this. I'm not going to tithe. I need all the money I can get. And I'm not going to trust that God is going to take care of me if I have a need. In lifestyle, it sounds like this. I have a better idea for how my life should be lived. I don't want biblical guidelines hemming me in in terms of what is moral or immoral. My motto is, if it feels good, that's what I'm going to do. If it's, God way, if it's not God's way, well, that's too bad. In business, it sounds like this. So what if I cut corners, swindle the customer, and go back on my promises? This is how you get ahead. And so God says to Samuel, okay, let them have their king. Just explain to them what it will cost them. And you may look at that and you say, why is God giving in so easy? Why is God letting them off the hook? He's actually not letting them off the hook at all. He's simply removing restraint, and as he removes restraint, he knows that this in itself is a part of punishing them. Sometimes, when we get our way, we are being punished. Romans 1 says this, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fooled, fools, and therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Now, the details of the sin is different. But the principle there is exactly the same. There are times when God is punishing us when He says, okay, have it your way. Because He knows better. He knows different. He knows what will happen. Let them have their king. But tell them what it will cost them. And so in chapter 8, verses 10 through 18, Samuel outlines all the things that it will cost them, all the ways it will cost them to have a king, cost them in terms of their goods and their services, the services that will de be demanded of their sons and their daughters. They will be, have portions of their crops and their livestock and their flocks taken. It will cost you to have a king. And they say, we are ready to pay that cost because we want to blend in and be like the, all the other nations. So at the end of chapter 8, Samuel knows that a big change is on the horizon. God has said, give them a king. Okay, how do you find one of those? It's not like you can put an ad in the newspaper and say, wanted king must be willing to take advantage of your people. 
Well, it just so happens that God has a plan. Because as chapter 9 unfolds, a handsome, tall young man is out looking for lost donkeys. His name is Saul, and he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And the search for these donkeys brings him near the village where Samuel lives. And he's been looking for these donkeys now for three days. And the servant with him realizes they are near the village where Samuel lives. At this point in history, they call him the seer. And so uh, he says, "Why, why don't we check in with the seer? Maybe he sees where these donkeys have gone. And so after some back and forth about how they're going to pay the seer, because you, you can't just walk up to him and demand his services, they, they have to give him something, eventually they settle on what they're going to do, they walk in the village, and they, and they run into Samuel himself. But Samuel has been prepared to meet them, because God has told him that men from Benjamin would come, and sure enough, they meet. After a brief introduction, Samuel says, let's pick up the reading in chapter 9, verse 19, and Samuel says this, go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning, and so in other words, and stay overnight, and in the morning, I will let you go and tell you all that is in your heart. Emphasize the word your there for a moment. I will tell you all that is within your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned if not to you and your father's family? Now about that moment, I can imagine Saul scratching his head and saying, what just happened here? I'm looking for donkeys. And this guy is saying that I'm the hope of all Israel and my family is the hope of all Israel. Before we move on, let's just pause to notice a few things. Number one, God is always ahead of us, preparing the way. Preparing the way for what's next as we move through even the ordinary stuff of life. You know, Saul is doing donkey duty here. It's not glamorous. But somebody has to chase after the donkeys when they get loose. And it was during this, you know, everyday task that God shows him the next big thing that's going to come in his life. Sometimes it feels like we're stuck. Sometimes it may feel like, you know, you're just stuck in a rut in your job, in the tasks that you have. Maybe it's just kind of like chasing donkeys figuratively, you know. But the point here is, if we are faithful in those small tasks, faithful in those things that don't seem to be glamorous, God may be constructing an encounter there in the ordinary that will bring us to the extraordinary for Him. That's what's happening in Saul's life. And also, we see that God understands the design that He has built into Saul's life. The plan for Saul to be king. It see, this whole situation seems like a setup job. One, in one moment, he's innocently, ineffectively chasing donkeys. The next, he's thrust into the limelight of the nation. He's about to be chosen to be the very first ever king. But God sees, and he communicates through Samuel, he sees that Saul will be up to this. Because in verse 9, he says, I will tell you all that is in your heart. God sees Saul's design. 
He knows all about Saul. He sees Saul and knows him better than Saul knows himself. Saul, at this point, doesn't see himself the way that God sees him. Not only is he able, but soon he will be willing. God sees the divine design inside Saul. See, God knows the things we care about. He sees the experiences that have shaped us. He understands the spiritual gifts that he has bestowed on us and the talents that he has invested in us. He sees our personality traits and the things that we are passionate about or could grow passionate about if we would learn more. That's what we call here at Quail your divine design. And that design is meant to be understood by God's people. So as we understand our design, we can use all that we are as we nurture that and seek to give God glory. That's why we run the Divine Design Seminar multiple times during the year. In fact, it's going on right now. Today's the second day of this, this cycle of the Divine Design Seminar. We do that so that we as God's people can come to understand ourselves in just a little way, the way that God sees us. And seek to understand that then God will direct us in a way that we're able to be useful for His kingdom in a, in a way that gives us joy. That's the secret. Because when you're serving God in a way that gives you joy, you will keep on and you will be effective for His glory. Now all of that is behind the scenes in terms of Saul being selected as the first king of Israel. And all alone with no one watching, Samuel anoints Saul with oil, separating him out and declaring that he will be king. Now at first... Saul is a bit hesitant about all of this. But to prove to Saul that this is exactly what's going to happen and this is the real deal, really from God, Samuel tells him, here's what's going to happen next, Saul. Today, you will meet two men who will tell you that the donkeys you're worried about are, are okay, but now your father is worried about you. Then you will meet three men who will go with you to the city of Bethel and they will give you food for no apparent reason. Then you will meet, uh, then you will go to Gibeah and in the city of Gibeah you will see a parade of prophets going by, dancing and praising the Lord and in the ecstasy of the moment you're going to join in, dance and prophesy with them. It is going to be a day like no other day. The Holy Spirit will come on you and you will be changed forever. Saul, this is going to be a great day you'll never forget today. And that's where they part company. And it sounds wacky, but Saul is willing to give it a try. And the reason he's willing to give it a try is because a word has begun to grow in Saul's consciousness. One word is beginning to take root in his heart, and the word is this, maybe. Maybe there's something to this. Maybe this is true. Maybe Samuel is not just a senile old man who's pouring oil on people's heads. Maybe I should listen to that little glimmer inside of myself that says, you just might be able to do this. And as we notice this, each of us should listen to that glimmer. Maybe I can be useful in the kingdom of God. Maybe there is a role for me to play in bringing God glory and spreading the gospel message. 
See, God is beginning to change Saul's heart to be open to that. And in chapter 10, verse 9, it says, as, Samuel turned, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. And, so, and Saul goes home knowing that his life is about to change. And so eventually, this plan of God has to come public. Eventually, they have to have a, a coronation of this new king. And Samuel, in order to accomplish that, calls a meeting back again at Mitzpah, that place where they, they have the ceremonies. And in dramatic fashion, Samuel narrows the field, first tribe by tribe, and then clan by clan, and then family by family, until the attention is drawn to just one single family in, this, in the nation Israel, the family of Kish and the son Saul. It's all very dramatic. It's all very ceremonial. But you need a little ceremony, right, when you're installing a king? In chapter 10, verse 21, it says this, Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. When the moment finally came, Saul knew how this was going to end. And when the moment finally came, and it was getting closer and closer and focused to him as the one now to be, uh, to be proclaimed the king, Saul was afraid. He was capable, he was charismatic, but he was not confident. And when that moment finally came for public recognition, he was hiding away. I didn't know, I didn't, don't understand how he thought he was going to get away with anything, but finally they, they found him, and the, in his uh, humility, he was, you know, kind of moving away from his duty. But, you know, that humility would serve him well for a time. But the people did find him. They dragged him out. They crowned him as king. And off he goes to serve in this, in this place of, of, uh, of service. He was able, but he was modest. And that's exactly what God is looking for in servants today. People who are capable, gifted, but modest. However, in the course of his life, that last element changes. So we're going to step away from the story of Saul for a moment now and try to draw some lessons out of the, these events. And lesson number one comes from the nation itself. And I'll call it the lesson of human freedom. Because in this story we see that God has a way for us to go as his people. But God does not drag us down that way. He gives us freedom to make choices. And sometimes we make bad choices. We see in the reality here that, that even when uh, we, we choose to rebel against God, the ability to just have it our way is in part God punishing us because he recognizes the blessings that we're missing and the consequences that will come. But even as he does this, he still loves us. He does not abandon his children. God still is overseeing the process and giving aid to his chosen people. See, even when we grieve him, he loves us. And that is true of every person in this room and beyond. You are not too far gone in the choices you've made. No one is too far gone for the love of God to take root. From Saul, we learn a few things. 
We learn to be faithful and active in the small tasks of life, even if it feels like we're on donkey duty. Be faithful there, or God will show us the next thing. We learn to pay attention to the small seeds of hope that God plants in our hearts as a vision begins to unfold. We learn to be courageous when God calls us to step up or step out in faith. Don't hide away hoping that He'll shift that call and, and put it on somebody else. God has a plan for us, for each of us. I'm reminded of a speech with uh, former Senator John McCain uh, once gave, and in the speech, he talked about what he called the courage deficit in our nation. He was talking about a courage deficit in our leaders. And that phrase stuck with me, courage deficit. We must see that there is not a courage deficit among the people of God. Are you wrestling with God about something? Maybe a next step in your walk of faith or, or a next step in serving Him in a new way. If the Spirit is nudging you towards boldness, say yes. Don't have a courage deficit. Why? Because you will walk in safety as you let God lead you. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you always have a next step for us in mind. There is always something that you're asking us to do according to the way that you designed us. And when we say yes, that's where we find joy. So we pray, Lord, that we would be your willing servants. And we pray that we are able to see your hand of mercy and care move through us and bring blessing to others. Thank you for this example that even in times when we make bad decisions, you are still right there with your love. We rejoice in that truth. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.